Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. My name is Jason Gale, and I'm joined this week by Dr. Benjamin Smith to discuss and continue our discussion uh, on authenticity. Last time we discussed authentic truth, and the time before that we discussed authentic beauty. Now, a main point that we said about both of these is that they are rooted in reality. This is a, a, a key aspect to all of these. Um, and so we're going to continue our discussion of the transcendental properties of being. And today we are going to look at authentic goodness. Now, being one of the transcendental properties of being, it is also rooted in reality. So that's a key point to remember as we go through this discussion. Um, but Dr. Smith, in terms of goodness, many times when we speak about goodness, it always leads to some discussion on ethics, which is a very hot topic today. Uh, and, sure. and it's a very difficult one to even um, form a foundation with somebody to have right. a productive uh, discussion about ethics. So how can we begin to uh, maybe build a foundation, maybe in our own thinking, so that w- mm-hmm. when we speak to other people, uh, we, can, we can have this firm foundation uh, to actually make some progress? Right, sure. So one of the things that's uh, interesting here, Jason, I think, is to think about, it, well, really to sort of contrast our own time mm-hmm. uh, and the sort of ethical dilemma and problem that you're talking about yeah. with the, the sort of classical view of ethics and the classical view of goodness, uh, because they really stand in very stark contrast. It's a very important book um, written by the philosopher Alistair MacIntyre. Uh, a book called After Virtue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a pretty pretty dense read, but it's been extremely influential. I would say it's single-handedly uh, probably relaunched interest in virtue ethics, uh, say outside of the Catholic sphere, uh, in the in the broader sort of academic community. It's a, a powerful work. He opens the book with a discussion of the contemporary scene, and he 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 observes um, that modern man is incapable, we're incapable really in a lot of ways, of entering into a shared ethical discourse, mm-hmm. shared ethical deliberation or discussions, as you're talking about. Instead, everything seems to turn into this kind of vilification, um, accusation, you know, sort of character assassination, right, that sort right, of thing, right. rather than than sort of like a uh, even a, a thoughtful, maybe passionate, but thoughtful uh, uh, argument about uh, about the good. And what McIntyre says that's especially instructive here is that uh, this is because we've lost the vocabulary and the intellectual sort of uh, structure that made it possible for us to have a shared deliberation, right? Uh, And we've replaced that classical tradition with emotivism. Right, right. Uh, I think that's a a key to remember, and this not only affect uh, i would say philosophy but this affected a lot of even currently affects a lot of uh, catechesis theology is this and, and it's maybe a broad point to remember i don't want to get too off topic but that language kind of forms that infrastructure to good and healthy uh, debates and discussion and so once you lose that that shared language or you just don't define your terms uh, we could mm-hmm. literally be using the same words and have completely different meanings. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that just does nothing for <laughs> actually making progress in trying to understand a, a particular ethical position uh, or to uh, be a proponent or an opponent uh, for one. 
Mm-hmm. So I, that's sure. a that's a very interesting point. I think it's something to to remember with more than just yeah. ethics here, but for a yeah, lot yeah, of things. Yeah, it's not just a matter of philosophical ethics. In fact, uh, Jason, I would say that this is, in some ways, almost kind of a default position that a lot of people fall back on mm-hmm. in, in ordinary life. Uh, I, I hear this all the time. You pick up emotivism, strains of emotivism, when people use words like, well, I feel like this is the way it should be, or I feel like that's the way it should not be, right? Yeah. Or that just makes me so so uh, so sad, or that's icky, or whatever. Like that, Those are emotive-type words. There's nothing wrong with emotional expressions, of course, but ethics is more than emotion. Right, right, right. Is what you were to say, right? And so uh, the technically, though, um, emotivism is the view that ethical statements, ethical claims, ethical judgments are merely emo- uh, expressions of emotion. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and so when I say, for example, that um, if I was to say that, that uh, abortion is immoral or that uh, adultery is wrong or something like that, right? What I'm really doing is I'm expressing my feelings about adultery. Right. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Right? I'm not saying I'm not actually describing adultery at all. I'm just saying that um, that uh, adultery is something that I have negative feelings about. Right. right? Uh, that I don't desire for myself or for others, or I I, I feel that that they, that it's something that should be avoided. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it goes back to that uh, underlining. Uh, premise that we we've talked about in the previous two podcasts uh, that what a thing is uh, lies in the reality of the thing. You know, we have to mm-hmm. look at the nature of the thing, whereas emotivism, I guess, building off a Kant, correct? Um, that uh, the, the thing in of itself, uh, mm-hmm. uh, what the nature of the thing, if you even want to call it that lies in yeah. however I feel about it or lies in. Yeah. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to associate emotivism too closely with Kant. Right. Um, Except for what you were saying about like that we don't know the thing in itself. I got that. Right. I get get Sarah making that connection. Kant would would be very worried about making <laughs> ethics only about emotion. I think you can kind of trace that back more really to the English tradition. Okay. Uh, you get uh, people like David Hume and, and Jeremy Bentham and and so forth, utilitarians or various forms of, uh, of empiricists. So when I see if I see some, let's say uh, this is a kind of maybe a little dramatic example, but let's say that I was to see to, to view someone being assaulted in a parking lot. Like mm-hmm. say I go shopping and I see somebody like really being, you know, seriously harmed. Right. Um, what, uh, you know, if I was to sort of, um, you know, take a video of that, <laughs> like I was not to intervene, you know, it's kind of a tendency of modern people, but anyways, right. Right, so like, I'm just gonna take a good, like a video of this. And then you go back and watch the video. Emotives would say, look, there's no goodness or badness that pops up anywhere in that video, right? It's it's not a thing in the world. It's not a it's not a thing that's that has any sort of purchase in reality. Now you might say, yeah, but would you want that done to you? And of course, the emotives can say, no, I, right. I would. I, I don't like being hit. I don't like being kicked on the ground. But that doesn't mean that there's something called evil that's attached to that assault. Right. Does that make right, sense? Right. You can't really get to the nature of an act. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they would say the only nature there is what can be described through the senses or through science. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then but then you say, well, what about all this moral and ethical discourse? Well, we just happen to be the kinds of things that have emotional responses, some of which are have a kind of moral overlay. So when I say stop assaulting that person, that's wrong. Right. You know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, then really, I'm expressing my when I say it's wrong. Really, I'm just expressing my repulsion to unjust assault. 
but it doesn't change. It has nothing to do with the underlying reality of the act. Ah, very good. So, so we, we, okay. So this emotivism is really taking over our, our culture and probably all of our ethical uh, discussions. How can we get a, a, a firm foundation with ethics or particularly with, with goodness? Sure. Yeah. With goodness. Yeah. So one thing is to, uh, is to go and ground it in goodness. One thing you could say here, you know, the, the, the example of assault's helpful. Mm-hmm. Let me just give you one other example and then I, I can sort of say something directly about goodness, but Another example is, you know, if you find out that your spouse is committing adultery, right? Mm-hmm. Is there, and you were to say to your spouse, "Hey, uh, th- this is wrong. You must stop." Right? Yeah. I'm angry with you for having mistreated me. The emotivist will say, "You know, <laughs> I know you feel that way about it, right? Yeah. But there's just nothing w- wrong in itself, right, with sleeping with uh, somebody other than your spouse." Um, from the emotive's perspective, right? There's nothing, like, you're, it sounds like you're saying, like, when you say adultery is wrong, it sounds like you're describing adultery, but really you're just expressing your feelings about right. it. So that should be, I think, an example that hopefully for most people, you're like, well, wait a second, that can't be right, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, you want to say, there's more to it than just, I don't like being cheated on. <laughs> it is, in fact, wrong, right? Right, but right. I don't like it because I perceive it to be wrong, right? Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And we can, and we can see, uh, you, you pointed out a, a good thing. Uh, and, and I think it makes a lot of us angry when we get that kind of apology. They don't apologize <laughs> for doing the thing, but they apologize <laughs> for your feelings. I'm sorry That's you right. felt that way. It's like, no, you can't. First off, you can't be sorry for my feelings. Second off, what you did was objectively wrong, objectively evil. Yeah, uh, I'm, you know? I'm, I'm sorry that made you feel bad. No, 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 no. My, my feeling bad is, in fact, the right response. <laughs> yeah. Because you did something bad. Yeah, it's, well, well, it's one of those things, like, in all reality, you should be happy that I feel this way because it is an appropriate response to the thing that happened to me. It would be horrible if I did not feel this way. Yeah, you're like, you know? uh, oh, I'm a cheating God. You're like, oh, okay, whatever. Right, cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's my ice cream. That's right. What's for dinner? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, so if you you know the alternative to this, uh, the way the way that we sort of get away from that is to return to thinking about is to base our ethical discourse, our ethical reflections on um, goodness as goodness is tied to reality. Okay. Right? Um, and that's where we kind of find find our, our real foundation. So. In the classical tradition, right, goodness is uh, a form of being. Okay, right. right. Uh, it's, it's being and reality as desirable. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, is, this, this underlies a, what's called a ethical realism or moral realism, right? That is the, the view that, that moral claims and moral judgments are based on reality and that it can be true or false in reference to, uh, in reference to reality. Now you might, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's a little maybe jarring in the other direction because we don't tend to think of reality as desirable, or at least that's not the first thing that we, we think of, you know, like, right. Oh, reality is desirable or being and good are really the same. Right. <laughs> Sometimes I bring it up that way. Again, it's a very classical position. You can find it in Augustine, Anselm, Aristotle, Plotinus, etc. Um, that being and goodness are really the same. So what in the world does that mean? Yeah. Well, when we think about something as, um, as good, right, a, a good, a, a, an excellent place to start is to recognize that when we say that something is good, what we're really saying is that it's 
desirable, right? It's mm-hmm. worthy of pursuit, right? When it's undesirable, it should be rejected. Right. And that's important, I think, at the, from the start, because there's a tendency, and this is tied directly to Kant, to separate the desirable and the morally good, right? Because right, right. Yep. there's what's morally good over here, and that's kind of like you're gritting your teeth and doing the right thing. And then there's some things that are desirable over here, and that's kind of like, well, they're okay to do as long as you don't break the moral duties or whatever, <laughs> yeah. right? But from the classical perspective, and, and really the, ca- the Catholic Church has taken this up and adopted it and developed it in its own way, really, those the, the morally good and the desirable are in fact the same, <laughs> okay? <Yeah. laughs> right? So we don't need to radically separate these things. So then you ask yourself, okay, well, if we're going to say that, that goodness, that the good is what's desirable, then you need to ask yourself, well, is something that you yeah, this is going to sound a little tricky at first. Is something desirable because I desire it, mm-hmm. right? Or should I desire it because it is desirable? Yeah, I'll say it one more time. So just for our listeners, uh, it might help. Is is it the case that something is desirable because it is desired? Or should something be desired because it is in fact desirable? Does that really right. seem the yeah, difference? Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, break it down now. <laughs> so that's what we want to say is not the first option. The first option is I desire it and therefore it has value. Right. False. Right. Okay. Uh, something doesn't have value. Just something doesn't become desirable uh, merely because I want it. Mm-hmm. Right? If you think about it just even for a second, that's obvious when you really think about it, right? Like, yeah, I want, you know, to eat two, I want to eat a bacon cheeseburger, a lo- you know, at a large chocolate milkshake and a large order of onion rings, and a large order of fries almost every day. Right. right. Yeah. That would be, yeah. that's not desirable. <laughs> <laughs> right? I may desire that, right. But it's not something that is in fact desirable for me. Um, similarly, uh, and much more importantly, uh, you know, you might uh, desire to steal from your company mm-hmm. uh, to pay off some debts or something like that, or to, you know, cover your mortgage for a couple of months or whatever it might be. Right. But just because you desire it doesn't make it, in fact, desirable. It's not it's not choice worthy. Right, right, right. And I, and I think maybe um, a, a, an analogy looking at uh, that we had talked about, you know, last week with truth, uh, particularly like with, you know, the Catholic Church and stuff. The Catholic Church, when she proclaimed something to be true, it is mm-hmm. not uh, it is not true because she claims it to be, um, <laughs> but she claims it to be because it is true. So maybe that, maybe that's, that's right. kind of an analogy to to understand this this particular point with goodness and desirability. What is what is authentically desirable mm. uh, is what is good for the human person and just right. because I desire something does not mean that it is authentically good or authentically desirable. That's right. You know, and I think this is so important to kind of get that. Uh, thanks for uh, bringing that example in, Jason, because it's just so important to get that pattern of thinking down, right? It's really mm-hmm. easy for us to start with ourselves and then shape reality to us. Right. And that's very much the modern ethos, right? Yeah. Um, that very much is kind of grows out of that Kantian perspective that we talked about before, uh, where mind is the measure of reality. That is not true. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, God's mind is the measure of reality. And then there's reality, God's reality, right? The reality that God has shaped and, and formed according to his own wisdom and power. And then there's us. Okay? <laughs> so we're like third down the ladder here right? uh, in terms of our own minds. Now, of course, he's shaped us too, right? And he shaped us to know the world in which he's created. But uh, you, you got you to gotta flip that script. We have such a 
a tendency to go from our own experience, our own minds, and just sort of project that into reality. Really, what we need to be is, I love these images of the of Our Lady, where she, uh, I don't know the particular artist or if there's a particular name for it, but very often it's at the Annunciation, mm-hmm. where you, you'll see her sort of kneeling, uh, and like her, her legs are sort of underneath her, and she has her, her arms out and her palms up, right? right? And kind of her head down in a very... Um, in a in a in a stance, really a gesture of openness and receptivity, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that is an extreme image, right, of what should be the true of us all the time, right? We're in God's world, yeah. Right? And and what we need to do is to be open to um, the reality that uh, God has created, uh, and that includes recognizing what's desirable, right? I don't make something desirable. What's desirable is already written into the fabric of reality. I'll bring up maybe uh, two common experiences. One of maybe uh, somebody that understands this and probably the contemporary modern person. So say something like adultery. So you have the, the, the modern contemporary person has a desire to cheat on their spouse with this, with this other person. They desire that and they, you know, and, and they justify it with all of with whatever reasons. And, but they recognize something in their desire. And so they say, there's not necessarily a problem in my desiring it, but there's a problem in, in everything else. Uh, uh, whereas the Catholic, you know, they desire that, that uh, eighth beer or something like that. Seven's okay, yeah. right? It's a biblical number. Um, you know, they, they desire something, and, but they, they stop and they ask the question, you know, is this good for me? And if they say, no, this is not really good for me, they say, okay, well, the problem in this situation lies in my desire it doesn't lie in the thing being presented but it but it lies in my in my desire for it you know so that's very good you know i I think kind of those two so i mean you know when you see that and this is why our our society holds up autonomy as the highest as kind of the highest virtue we can we can protect you know Mm -hmm. is this this uh, person's ability to choose even if something is not good for them i mean look at the whole you know, uh, transgender issue and things. I mean, we don't have to get into all of it, but, but I mean, like that's, that's not good for the human person to, to mutilate their body, uh, that way. However, you know, so we say, well, but the person has the right to choose, you know, (laughs) as opposed to saying, well, maybe the problem in this situation lies in my desiring for this not in uh, the thing itself. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so there you have to say, you know, I'm the problem, right? <laughs> you know, right? right? My desire is the problem. Right. And oh, and oh my, we hate to say that, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, this goes back to a lot of the issues about original sin and so forth that we've talked about before and, and what a real Christian perspective is on, on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, have, we have, a, I think, a tendency to overrate ourselves more oh, yeah. than underrate. Um, but yeah, so that uh, once you sort of can sort of flip that script and get it back to thinking, okay, well, goodness and and then also you know conversely evil, right, mm-hmm. have to do uh, with reality. So the next I think move here is that once you recognize that 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 desire isn't itself the the foundation or the criteria of what's really desirable. Right. So that's what we've established so far. The next thing to really recognize is. Um, that uh, some things are really desirable and others are not, right? Mm-hmm. That is, some things appear to be desirable, and that's why we go after them, right? Mm-hmm. But they turn out not to be desirable, right? Um, 
or they appear to be desirable just from one aspect and not another aspect, right? Uh, we can distinguish the, I would call it the merely apparently desirable, right, with the really desirable, right? right? And then, and of course, you ask the question, well, how do you make the, the difference? What's the distinction there, right? So let's look, just to, uh, maybe look at just uh, the question of adultery again. When you think about adultery, why why do people pursue adultery? Why, why, why do people commit adultery? They commit adultery because they perceive it to be desirable under some aspect. And, right, it might be exciting, right? That might make it desirable. Mm -hmm. uh, it might be pleasurable, like, mm -hmm. you know, physically pleasurable, emotionally pleasurable, those sorts of things. Um, and, in, and, in, and, and taken in isolation, right, you can kind of say, well, pleasure is not evil in itself, right? right. Uh, pleasure is something that we're designed to kind of seek after, or at least it's associated with, with our design. Um, but what you want to say is it only appears to be desirable because taken as a whole, the act is intrinsically evil, right? It's an act of injustice against your spouse. Yeah, right? exactly. So it appears to be desirable, but in fact, it is not. Right? Yeah. Uh, by contrast, the really desirable, that is the authentic good, um, is based in the reality of the human person and the reality of the agent's circumstances. Um, so what's really desirable for someone, Aristotle calls this the mean, um, I don't want to get too far into that terminology. It can be a little misleading or difficult, but um, the, the the what's really desirable is that which is proportionate to who and what I am, mm -hmm. right? So the reality of who I am and what I am. I've found it convenient over the years to, to focus on those two words, who and what, to kind of bring out two aspects of the reality about myself. The reality about myself is that I'm a homo sapien. I'm a rational animal, right? So that's mm -hmm. the what, okay? And then there's also the who, right? I am a father. I'm a citizen of the United States. Uh, I'm a friend to, uh, you know, several different people, those sorts of things, right? So both in terms of my, of my being, right, my species, and in terms of my... Um, uh, my, my kind of individual circumstances. Right. Uh, both of those, right, kind of define the reality that has been Smith, right? Um, so what's desirable for me is what's fitting and desirable for this, for, for this being, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what's proportionate? I think the word proportionate is helpful here, or due, or appropriate, or fitting. Uh, those are helpful words. Yeah. Um, the uh, it, it's it, I think it's fairly evident once you start to illustrate with examples. So, is it proportionate, uh, Jason? Would it be proportionate for a father, especially say in a single income home? Would it be Would it be good and desirable for him to to quit his job impulsively? Absolutely not. Right, right. It wouldn't be <laughs> fitting, right? Because right. part of being a father is providing for your children, right? Uh, you know, another example would be what about destroying your intelligence with using drugs well that's that's not just unhealthy it's morally bad right leaving aside the question of addiction and culpability it the in its species right it's a it's a bad kind of action because it's not fitting to a rational being right 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 it's not proportioned to being a rational being what about uh is would it be okay for me to um sell state secrets right um to the enemies of the united states no it wouldn't right because it's not fitting to me as a citizen of the United States of America. Mm -hmm. You following my? The, the, yeah, the, absolutely. The, I remember when I when I was uh, uh, engaged, uh, uh, a great priest that uh, um, witnessed our marriage. He, you know, he took me aside and he was saying, you know, the the hardest choices you're ever going to have to make are between what is good and what is good. 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and going back to, you know, having the ability to actually examine this and choose correctly. I mean, a choice for a Catholic between a good and an evil, that should be easy. You know, you can never well, choose the evil, you know. It- it should be clear. Least, it should be right? at least, yeah, it should be at least clear. <laughs> but but a difficult one could be between what is good and what is good. And, you know, so the example I always use, you know, if the, the, the local men's shelter said, okay, we need a volunteer to stay um, every evening, or, you know, Sunday through Sunday, you know, 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. It would, it would not be good for me to go home and tell my wife, honey, I would love to be home with you and the kids, but, you know, I need to go do this, you know, every <laughs> night. No, I cannot. It is not good for me. Yeah, it's uh, like given who you are. Yeah, given who you are. Again, going like like you just did, going through those aspects of, of who I am and me, what those roles call me to do. It would be it would not be good for me to say, All right, honey, I'll 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 see you. You know, I get off at work at four. I got to go to the men's shelter at five. I'll see you maybe on the weekends. You know, like that would <laughs> that would be absolutely horrible. I mean, I'll that would be you in for Saturday at six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll pencil you in. Yeah, no, I mean th- that would be absolutely horrible. Uh, sure. uh, you know, again, like you said, you know, going through. So I mean, there's some some of those things are you know particular to each person, mm-hmm. but then there's yeah. those you know those desirables that are universal, you know, Let's like we, like we had talked about eating the, uh, hamburger cheat, uh, uh, milkshake, right, right. everything for. So one thing, you know, one thing you can say for sure, right. is like, um, I don't want to kind of spell out the argument for this right now. Cause it'd get too long, but uh, you know, um, I take it as a conclusion of both faith and right reason, uh, <laughs> that, um, that knowing and loving God and enjoying God is the ultimate end of man. Mm-hmm. Um, that's objectively so, universally so right um so even with like when you're going to mass you may not feel like going to mass i get it right you might be you know you're that day you're just not really into it um but it is objectively desirable for you to be there regardless right um um uh and that's tied into the reality about god and the reality about you as a human being Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not uh, we could, you know, spend some time explaining that and talking about exploring. And that would actually be really that's, that's a helpful and useful thing to do, of course. Um, but uh, it's a it's a fact whether I desire it or not. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's a truth about uh, uh, about reality grounded in reality. So uh, I think, you know, when you when you start to think about it this way, you can see there really are some things that are, are really desirable and some things that really are not desirable. Now, you might sort of kind of go a little bit deeper here and ask, well, okay, what makes it desirable for me to do what's proportionate to me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is being a little philosophical, right? So why is it desirable to do that, which is fitting and appropriate? So I, I actually think, to yeah. be perfectly honest, uh, as a moral realist, I, I have not a lot of patience for this idea that like, the moral law is like super vague and you people can't figure it. That's, that's um, <laughs> malarkey. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I, I think it's pretty evident and I think we kind of know it most of the time. There are hard decisions like a discerning particular, uh, maybe circumstances, but sure. in terms of, um, but in terms of the like moral issues, right. I, I think it's, it's there, uh, most of the time there, there, I'm sure there are, of course there are exceptions, but most of the time it's pretty obvious. Um, but you might ask yourself, okay, maybe that adultery is wrong is evident because it's disproportionate to being a spouse. You know, mm-hmm. it's unfitting to a spouse. 
Why should I do that which is fitting? Why should I do that which is uh, proportional to who and what I am? And the, and the kind of deeper answer is has to do with you actually, sound weird for you come to be more right yeah. when you pursue that which is proportionate to you mm-hmm. uh, the way that say thomas and aristotle talk about this is in terms of actualization uh or in terms of perfection perfection not understood as sort of like being uh, pristine or flawless but in the sense of uh, um thoroughly done becoming complete yeah uh i hesitate to use the word fulfillment because, uh, although I think there's a right way to use that word, uh, because that almost in our culture, it, it kind of like with the term happiness, unfortunately, it almost always becomes com- kind of this kind of vapid emotionalism. Right. Right. Completely um, subjective. Yeah. Yeah. Completely subjective. Oh, it's fulfilling to me, meaning like it feels good. No, sometimes going to mass is boring. Right. Yeah. And it's still more completing of my being to be there. Right. It actualizes me as a human being in Imago Dei. Uh, to be there even when I'm bored, <laughs> okay? Exactly. Right? And maybe, in fact, especially when I'm bored, right? If I'm there and I'm, you know, it's an act of the will because I love you, God, and I'm getting no sensible delight from this at all, right? Yeah. Uh, and the homily's boring, and that kid up there is wearing tennis shoes or sticking out under the thing that he wears, you know, whatever, <laughs> right? Like, you know, like, you know what I'm saying, right? This is just not happening today, but I'm here as an act of, of, of my will, right, uh, to serve God and to glorify God. Well, that's actually more perf- – that's perfecting of me as a human being. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. There was a um, – there's a, a great uh, quote by uh, Chesterton that I can't uh, uh, remember off the top of my head, but goes through its uh, uh, faith, hope, and love. But he talk, but he says, you know, mm-hmm. faith is not really a virtue if it's easy to believe. If something is is mm-hmm. is something is completely evident, it's not faith. Uh-huh. You believing it is not a virtue at all. It is when something mm-hmm. is unbelievable that faith become and you believe it. Sure, faith right. becomes a virtue. And he was saying the same thing about, you know, when everything seems hopeless, for the for the Christian to hope. That's when hope becomes right. a virtue. You know, same thing with right. you know, yeah. same thing with love. When mm-hmm. none of your emotions are there, and you're, you know, you you do something for your spouse, you do something for your children. When everything inside of you wants to do something else, wants to go watch football mm-hmm. or wants to right. spend time doing something else, and you set that aside, like that's when it becomes a, a, a genuine virtue. And that's when, again, like you said, not necessarily you know, the term fulfillment, but that's when, you know, the human person can really uh, flourish uh, in that way. Uh, and again, it's according to the, the, the nature of the person. It's because of who he that's is right. and yeah. how he was made and designed. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's a fulfillment of his character as Imago Dei, right? That is, is made in the image of God and ordered towards, um, you know, uh, uh, everlasting communion with God and communion with the Holy Trinity. Um, that, you know, is in our being, that's what we're ordered to, right? Um, and, and doing the acts that make me fit for sharing in a Trinitarian life, um, actually, uh, begin to actualize me more and more right. as a human being, right? On the other side of it, vice, right? Uh, say intemperance or wrath or things of that nature, they deform and corrupt my humanity. They don't make you stop being human, okay? Yeah. But it is the case that you you are impoverishing your humanity. That's why I would put it right. Uh, you still fit within the category, 
right? right. But we even recognize this, like in, in really sort of wildly evil people, we'll say sometimes, man, that's inhuman, right? Yeah. And, and what we're recognizing there is there's a lack of of the of what of the being the completeness of a human be, uh, there that this this evil act is really bringing out and manifesting. Yeah, and being a mechanic, my my mind immediately goes to cars and mm-hmm. uh, uh, those analogies. I mean, you know, a a broken down car in your front lawn with like a tree mm-hmm. growing through the engine compartment. <laughs> we we still call that a car. You know, when it's sitting next to, you know, the Ferrari in your, uh, uh, in the driveway, you know, we, but they're not, you know, one of them, one of them (laughs) has a lot more actuality to it. That's Uh, right. uh, The actuality of being a car. Yeah. uh, uh, Of being Uh, a car. I mean, you know, your, your car can still barely function on, you know, if it's a four cylinder, it can function on three cylinders, but it's not going to go very fast. It's going to get right. horrible gas mileage. It's going to have right. a lot of problems. So, right. you know, somebody can, you know, a human person uh, uh, can be filled with vices. You know, it's it's kind of like, you know, they're running on two or three cylinders. They're not going to mm-hmm. flourish. They're going to have mm-hmm. many different issues. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's going to lead to the, uh, uh, the, the overall destruction of the, right. the, the person, That's even right. though they don't necessarily lose their nature. Uh, it's going to lead, it's going to lead to their, uh, destruction. So, I mean, it, when we talk about, you know, uh, goodness, it really is for that flourishing. I mean, everybody, you know, and we understand this with, with, uh, many different things we want to, uh, function. We want to, and it's not just function, but we want to, to flourish at the highest capacity. I mean, you, when you think about the, the, the CEO, that's, you know, somebody or the, somebody that aspires to be a CEO, somebody that, uh, um, is fixing up a car, somebody that is, uh, right. uh fixing up a house, you know, they yeah, don't want yeah, yeah. they, they want to bring it to that, that place of, uh, real life. They want to bring That's that right. thing to life. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and it's obviously not the same, but it's just very similar to the human person. I think so. Yeah. In fact, when you look at anything, uh, I, I would, would, would argue that anything that's really desirable, right. Um, really involves the uh, an actualization of some sort or the other. Yeah. You, know, you think about friendship. Well, very often friendships, you know, can have different characters to them or different points of emphasis. It might be actualization in terms of a shared activity that you both enjoy, in which mm-hmm. case it's just pleasure, but that's not bad, right? Like you both enjoy, you know, football or, or some, you know, uh, some pastime or something. Um, it's actualizing your ability to talk about that thing, to view it, to, uh, to kind of contemplate it, uh, you know, and so forth. Um, uh, um, or it could be more deep or it could be deeper, right? You know, like some of our friends who, you know, we say so-and-so brings out the best in me, right? Uh, you know, what they're doing, like what you're saying there kind of implicitly is they help you flourish more as a human being, right? They bring more goodness out of you. Um, uh, that sort of thing. I think the, um, um, uh, it even, uh, and even when you're thinking about pleasure, I think sometimes we get just, just kind of distracted by the issue of pleasure. Oh yeah. Pleasure is a form of, of the good. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes people don't, don't, don't know that all things considered doing the right thing and enjoying doing the right thing is yeah. really great. <laughs> all right. Like it's not, you know, there's sometimes there's this image that you have to be like clenching your teeth. But if you're if you're doing the right thing and you're enjoying it, that's great, right? Yeah. God made this made made 
goodness and virtue to be enjoyable for us. The key point there is that the pleasure must be attached to the right thing, you know, because right and, and that's and that's yeah. where our, that's where our that's where we can. I, I think that's a common uh, a place that we can kind of come together is, OK, let's recognize, OK, pleasure, uh, pleasure is desirable. Pleasure is good uh, to some degree. But we have but where we draw the line is as Catholics or as Christians is that the pleasure must be connected to the right thing. I cannot I cannot seek pleasure for its own purpose, you know, because I mean, what if I get pleasure out of, you know, throwing chairs at people or kicking puppies? You would say, no, that's a no, that is not good. The pleasure, the pleasure you desire, the pleasure you desire, the pleasure you get from that is horribly wrong. And we would we would even say disordered. Uh, which mm. means that a there's a proper order, uh, right. uh, and, and sure. b pleasure is not uh, an end in and of itself. That it has to be right. attached to something that is already good. Uh, yeah, that's, that that makes it really desirable, right? Yeah. So it needs to, you know, when we think about pleasure, uh, these examples you're using are, are apropos. The pleasure is really a consequence of an action. Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. it's an accompaniment to an action, but it's not the very action itself. Right. Right. Uh, and, and so to, to you, there's no just action that just is pleasure, yeah. right? There's actions that delight or, 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 or that sadden, right? Or mm-hmm. grieve or pain, but there's no just pleasure in isolation, right. pain in isolation. They always go with an underlying action mm-hmm. and really our analysis of whether or not it's, a, it's good or not really has to do with that underlying action. Pleasure, of course, is always preferable to pain, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but sometimes doing what's really desirable will be painful. Uh, but what makes it good or bad is neither the pleasure nor the pain, but the reality of the action, the reality of the agent. So back again, right, uh, to being in reality. I've heard some people respond to this approach by saying, well, wait a second. People do what's virtuous just because they actually enjoy it, right? So say a mother tending to her um, annoying child. Mm-hmm. Say the mother is, is really annoyed, <laughs> but goes ahead and acts in a loving manner and is compassionate to the child and takes care of the child. And, 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 and some people say, well, that's because, and then later on she she feels good about having done the right thing. Or, uh, some people will say in response to that, well, see, she really only did it because of the consequence of the pleasure. Right. And, <laughs> and I'll say, no, you're, you're misunderstanding. She's pleased with her behavior because she thinks her behavior was right. 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 It's the goodness of the action that gives rise to the feeling of, of satisfaction for having done the right thing. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. So yeah, again, we, the good is prior to the, the, the feeling of it. Yeah. And we, and you see the, 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 the converse of it all the time where when somebody doesn't do the right thing, they feel guilty. They feel sure. bad. Um, mm-hmm. And it's only in retrospect that they could say, okay, you know, I, I, I did recognize what the right thing was and I did not choose it. And mm-hmm. it is it is that choice of not choosing the good that makes them feel bad. You know, it's not, you know, so like you said, it's a, it's that, you know, consequence. So one of the things, you know, that, that to kind of tie all this together that's, that's underneath here is, right, was we're pushing again, both when we talked about truth, when we talked about beauty, now talking about authentic goodness, is pushing it back towards reality, mm-hmm. right? You know, it, thinking about reality, accepting reality, affirming reality, conforming to the reality that God has made. Sometimes that's hard, right? We don't like it, right? Uh, Obviously, this is most evident in in the issues, uh, or at least most obvious right now in areas like sexuality. I think it's also evident, to be perfectly frank, in in areas about uh, our use of material goods. Yeah. Our addiction to accumulation, right? Um, Towards greed, 
what I, I sometimes call the American vice, right, yeah. is, uh, uh, is, is, is contrary to our nature. The rational use of material things is to have what you, uh, to have as much as you need for today and tomorrow and a decent amount, mm-hmm. uh, not endless accumulation. <laughs> right? and, 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 and in fact, St. Thomas says, and I think he's right, that it's immoral, right, uh, to have a strong attachment to getting uh, an excess of that. If you end up with an excess, it's a different thing. Right. Having a strong attachment, right, you know, is, is actually bad, <laughs> right? Uh, that's, a, that's a really strong thing to say. But um, uh, uh, our it goes beyond the reality of our rationality, right, mm-hmm. and the reality of what we really need in life, right, and, and the real place of material things. Looking at, at sexuality, right? I mean, the, you know, Hima Vida, uh, you know, anytime I, I ever sort of have a moment where I'm like, uh, you know, have, you know, entertain some sort of uh, doubt or something in my faith, one of the things that always comes back to me is just Hima Vida, right? Like, yep. I, I mean, there are, there are way more important things than Hima Vida, but man, that, that, that thing is just so true and perceptive, you know what I mean? Uh, and, um, you know, the truth about human sexuality is that it is necessarily tied to procreation, mm-hmm. right? If it's not ordered towards procreation in one way or the other, there's more to it than procreation. I know yeah. that, okay? <laughs> but procreation is a irreducible, necessary condition, right, uh, of authentic human sexuality. That's the reality about sex and human beings, right? And we don't like that reality. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And so we just ignore it. We just completely ignore it. Uh, 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 and you brought up recently this uh, this point about, uh, uh, I think there was a, a law maybe passed in Alabama about abortion. Mm-hmm. Is that right? And, and somebody some uh, somebody was writing, well, this uh, wrote in, I think, a, on an internet blog or something, uh, a comment along the lines of, well, this is basically forced pregnancy. Yeah. And if we're going to have forced pregnancy, then men shouldn't be allowed to abandon their children. And I want to say, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we've yeah. always been saying this, right? Like that's called marriage, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I saw somebody make, made the argument. If women can, if women can choose to abort the baby because it's an inconvenience, why can't mm-hmm. men, or why can't the fathers stop paying child support because it's inconvenient? You know, I mean, yeah, like yeah. if we're gonna if we're gonna start basing these uh, uh, arguments yeah. on things that are that frivolous or that small, as opposed to right. getting at the thing itself, uh, sure. then we're in for a world of uh, right. legislative hurt. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just gonna... well, and, and here's the thing, you know, is, is I bring up that example just to say that. We end up having to jump through all these hoops and suffer all of this sociological and psychological blowback mm-hmm. because we won't accept the reality of the thing, yeah. <laughs> right? That the reality of the thing is it's tied to procreation. It's tied to family life. Um, uh, it's tied to marriage, right? Um, those are the kinds of things that, you know, we just want to ignore it, you know, as much as possible. Again, not to go, go too far off on, on sexual ethics or, 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 or issues about greed, but just those are examples, I think, where what you recognize is our, in our depravity, mm-hmm. we very often want unreality, right? Yeah. We want to live in a world other than re- re- the real world. We want to act in a way that's deluded. Not that we consciously think that, but we want to delude ourselves in the same thing. I can fly. 
I can, you know, eat glass. I can, you know, I can go completely off of um, uh, what's sound and true and real and just do whatever I want. Yeah, I mean, that, they'll never say that, but the reality is, is, is that's exactly what they're doing. And the way they just say things like, sure. well, you know, gender is a social construct. That's what they... And, and, you know, well, okay, so is your gender theory. That's a social construct, too. You know, so, you know, I mean, so, again, you have to go back of what are we going to base this on? Are we going to base it on society's feelings about this issue at this time? Uh, um, that That's a, that's not a very firm place to, to plant your feet, you know? That's shifted uh, sand, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or, or, or the one of my favorite books, Relativism, you know, Feet Firmly Planted in Thin Air. That's 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 kind of where we're, we're establishing ourselves. So, I mean, everything can just quickly change uh, uh, and, and move in directions that, again, are not rooted in reality. They, they become just a, um, a, a vice-filled society's delusion. Yeah, it's just delusion. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's that's where and, we're headed, you know. And, and you know, when we look at the the, the rates right now of, of mental illness, uh, the rates of opioid addiction, the rates of the uh, horrific suicide rates that we're yeah. going through, um, you know, maybe we, maybe maybe we're deluded. <laughs> like maybe we're maybe our refusal to conform to reality is actually bad for us. And this is, I guess, what I want to kind of loop back to and maybe wrap up with a little bit here it's just to say like even though reality doesn't all isn't always comfortable even though reality isn't always doesn't always fit our emotions at the time mm-hmm. the truth is that being and, and goodness are really the same right yeah. that is being is what's really desirable um and and god created it that way and so you know when we are pursuing what's real what's really desirable. We're pursuing uh, a, a kind of reality that is um, actualizing, that brings about flourishing, um, that, you know, in a lot of ways, it does, it, on the front end, sometimes it feels restrictive and challenging. But once you sort of penetrate into it more deeply, what you come to realize is that God has created a reality that is, in fact, desirable. It's a wonderful reality. Yeah. Uh, it's a reality that's challenging often, right? But it's a reality that is full of beauty and truth, that's inspiring, that really the further we go into it and the more we realize it, the more we come to flourish, right? And I think that that's uh, that's not only um, morally healthy, right? It's also, I think, um, metaphysically and really spiritually inspiring. I think we've given our listeners a lot to think about. But one thing I I do want to kind of end on, because I think it's a good first kind of starting point or... If it's not, if you're already there, it's a it's a good place to continue. Is is adoration, um, because mm. a, especially if you go for an entire hour, um, because sure. a, if you do have those initial emotions, it's very unlikely that those emotions will stay there for the full hour. Um, That's a good point. And b the re the when when you're there in adoration, you you are there where essence and being are there in the most real way whether your senses recognize it or not again it's a it's a, i think it's a great place to to contemplate this kind of aspect of what is the reality that is before me my where you know in saint thomas you know in his beautiful prayers for ador, you know for adoration and benediction you know where my senses fail the the eyes of faith tell me that that you are there that the reality that is there before us is christ himself and and, and to sit with that 
you know, to, to contemplate mm-hmm. that in silence. Goodness is there. Authentic truth is there. Authentic beauty is there. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's only with the eyes of faith uh, that we can see it. You know, you, you brought this up in, in um, I think, one of the, the YouTube videos we shared, you know, that we can understand things, some things naturally. You know, I can see without my contacts. But when we put on the glasses of faith, how much more mm-hmm. clearly we can see everything else. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I think adoration's a, a beautiful place to to go to see uh, truth, beauty, goodness. And the amazing thing, like you said, is, is when we conform ourselves to that reality, we begin to flourish. When we begin to flourish in the way that God designed us, we're able to see the world like him. And so we're able to see the beauty of the world, the goodness of the world, the the truth that exists in the world. And so I want to invite our listeners to really try to, to remember that basic principle that we've, that we've talked about with all these transcendental properties of being, uh, that it lies in the reality. Uh, and when we, when we form ourselves and conform our thinking to that reality, uh, we're able to uh, flourish and bring others also into that flourishing. With that, I want to thank everybody for listening. Until next time, God bless.